You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Emily Peters, CEO and founder of Uncommon Bold and a member of the Inforum Advisory Board. This evening, I'm excited to be in conversation with Claire Saffitz. Claire is a food writer, pastry chef, and she was also the host of the extremely popular Bon Appetit digital show, Gourmet Makes. She joins us at Inforum today to discuss her new cookbook, Dessert Person, Recipes and Guidance for Baking with Confidence. At any point, if you'd like to ask Claire a question, please ask it in the chat or comment section. We'll try to get through as many as possible by the end of this program. And let's get started. So thank you for joining me this evening, Claire. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to chat with you. I know. I'm so, it feels amazing to me that I get to talk to you for an hour tonight because I have, I'm one of those people who's watched every single one of your videos and this is like getting to sit down with uh, Big Bird. So I'm so excited to hear all the different things that we're going to cover and how much we get to learn about baking at this moment that feels like really baking is having having its moment in the sun, right? Yes, yes. Well, thank you. So tell us, uh, to start, I want to hear about the process of creating this cookbook um, and specifically creating this cookbook at this exact moment. Um, you know, it sounds like you started this process over a year ago. Is that right? I started the book process more like two plus years ago. So I... I was a full-time food editor at Bon Appetit for many years, and then I left in the summer of 2018. And it was really in that next fall um, that I started thinking about a cookbook and starting to think about it seriously. Um, And so the the cookbook kind of took shape um, like winter, starting winter of 2018, and I wrote it for basically a year. And that was a year of what was for me like intense intense recipe development and creativity and brainstorming. And I didn't set out knowing exactly what the book was going to be. Um, but I, I sort of knew, I, I don't know, I guess I just sort of had faith that in the process that like I, I knew what I wanted the recipes to be. And I sort of knew I would get there eventually. And I'm glad that that was the process and that I didn't have this really um, detailed outline or, or proposal because it, it let the book kind of take form organically which is not really how I like to work, but it's kind of what happened. Um, so I really wrote it from like winter, winter of 2018 to winter of 2019. And then lat, this past January, we sh- did all the photography. And, um, and then the book really got edited um, in, as we went into quarantine starting in March. So the editing process was relatively quick. It was from March into like this past summer. And then the book writing process is just so weird. It's like I was used to working in magazines with very different kinds of deadlines. And I didn't, when I thought about writing a cookbook and knowing that the process basically takes two years from conception to publication date, I was just like, what takes so long? Like, why does it take so long? And then having done it, it was like, at no point did I feel like I had enough time, you know, like not even two years before knowing the book would come out. Did I feel like it was enough time? So now I really get it. Um, but it's just it in a lot of ways it felt like a marathon and a sprint to 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 create it and then it's a little strange like to be doing this book tour now 
it's so it is very fresh in my mind, but it also is something that I now have distance from, which I think is really helpful. It, it helps me kind of see dessert person the way I think it really is. Um, whereas like when you're in it, like you, 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 you're just, you don't have any perspective. So it's, it's very cool to experience the book as this entity that's now out in the world. Um, because you know, uh, when you're writing it, it's just like, none of it makes sense. And it's just, you don't know how it's going to take shape. So it's, it's very cool to be talking about it now with, with that, um, little bit of distance from it. We, um, your viewers are, fairly obsessed, I would say, with watching your process. Was there ever an impulse during the cookbook writing process to be like, I should be on camera and showing people what this is like and how hard it is and how... (laughs) (laughs) There is that... uh, Generally, no, actually. Like, I think there is that... Because the process is so messy, sort of like literally and figuratively. Um... And it's can be very stressful, and um, and yet at the same time, it is such a fascinating process, and, and it's a, a process that still fascinates me after hundreds of of recipes. And um, I, I I developed this book at home in in my apartment, and that that is a, a different way of working than I was accustomed to at a place like Bon Appetit, where we were in a test kitchen working in a different kind of environment. And mm-hmm. being able to test something at home really, I think, was an asset to writing the book because it just got me, like, I didn't, you know, I didn't have a, anyone to do my dishes. I did my own dishes. And so it'd be like, okay, can I make this recipe without using my food processor? Because I hate cleaning that thing, you know? <laughs> so it, it did lead to, I think, um, just greater consideration and sensitivity for home bakers and home cooks. So that, that was, was, that was really, really positive. Um, but to sort of more answer, answer your question more directly, like there were times where I was just like, yes, this has been a really cool process from A to B, um, you know, or from like, you know, point, point A to point B being sort of like where the recipe started and where the recipe ended up. But um, I'm, I'm glad, glad that it hasn't been documented because there were a lot, a lot of recipes, recipes where I spun my wheels and I, I got frustrated. And some of, some of the recipes I just abandoned altogether mm-hmm. and others I, I had to sort of put away for a while and then come back to because I wasn't getting anywhere. And, and just one thing I learned from Gourmet Makes is like a little bit of time away from something can, mm-hmm. can help a lot when you just feel like you've hit a roadblock. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was... I still love the the process, you know, it, it didn't, it wasn't diminished at all because, you know, in writing this book. So, um, but it was, I, I, um, I've made really good friends with my neighbors cause I gave them a lot of the tests. <laughs> Lucky neighbors. They got lots and lots of pastries, all that process. Was yeah. there a recipe that really stood out to you that either did or did not make it into the final book that was really just like the Skittles, you know, to cut oh, it back yeah, to poor right. Mavis, um, was there one that was the hardest? I had, you know, I, it happened most often with the simplest recipes and some of those recipes made it in. Like I made that, um, there's an almond butter banana bread. I made that banana bread like 15 times, you know, and it was starting to really bug me because it's like, this is banana bread. Like this shouldn't be that hard, but it's recipes like that where there are relatively few ingredients and the proportions are so important. It's like, because there's so few ingredients that, it just was like you change a little something and you add a little more moisture or a little more baking powder and the whole thing changes. And so that was, that one was surprisingly challenging. And I had the same problem with like the brownie recipe, um, which I had to like put away and then come back to because it was just like, 
this is not getting, you know, it was just moving like laterally. It wasn't moving forward. Um, mm. There was a recipe for basically like a kind of gingerbread, a kind of sort of date, almost like a sticky toffee pudding or date cake mixed with gingerbread. And I loved the idea and I just sort of like never really got it to a place that I liked it. Um, and actually I revisited it over the summer because I was putting together um, along with my editor and our publisher, uh, a, a PDF of like bonus recipes. And it was mm -hmm. kind of a, like a little bonus for, um, for people if they pre-ordered the book and we sent it out. And I revisited the recipe then after having not made it for like months and months and kind of came up with a version of it that I really ended up liking. And so that made it into the, uh, into that PDF of bonus recipes. So it's just like, you just need that time away from something, I think. Um, and, and that helped a lot, but yeah, so there were definitely recipes that I cut cause it was like, this isn't get, this isn't where I want it to be really. Yeah. And speaking of time away, after you finished that process of all that recipe testing, did you need to kind of take a break from baking for a while or no, it didn't. <laughs> it's not like I needed a break from baking, but I needed, I, I needed time to go back to cooking. It's like, I totally abandoned savory cooking while writing mm -hmm. this book for a year. And I just really missed cooking for myself and, and for my husband, like he, I would bake all day long and then I would just like flop over on the couch at 7 PM and like he would make dinner. And because I was just like, I can't, you know, like I've eaten sugar all day. Like I can't be in the kitchen anymore. My feet hurt. I've done, you know, three loads in the dishwasher. Um, and I was very lucky that he would make me dinner. Um, and, but I missed that. So I've, I like felt like when I really put the recipe testing process away, I, I rediscovered just like the pleasures of, of cooking dinner, you know, and not having to write down what you're doing and measure, like it was just nice to, to reconnect to that. Which I think is a great transition to a line that's at the very beginning of your new book that I think is somewhat contentious where you say, you get a little frustrated when people say that they are cooks, not bakers. And <laughs> myself and I, um, my friends who are watching tonight, we're all like, I very much use that line for myself that I think very much like I am a cook. You know, I want it to get all crazy and go in different directions and have no recipe. And when I try to bake, I have to you know, get like incredibly focused. It's so different for me, but you're on a crusade. You're changing this, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I am. And that idea, like I've heard that so many times from people who are like, oh, I, I love to cook, but I don't bake, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that when I hear that, what I'm hearing is people who have been indoctrinated into this false way of thinking that like they're two very separate things. Mm -hmm. um, Cause that's kind of how, that's just kind of like the paradigm, I think, of thinking about you have cooking over here and you have baking over here. And in my mind, they're not that different. They're not fundamentally different. They're just sort of like, there's just degrees of difference. And they kind of exist on a spectrum. It's like you got, you have, yes, you have some cooking on this end and some baking on this end, but they're super interconnected. Um, and baking just has like more, more rules, I think. Um, and, but it, I think it's also like a misconception that like cooking doesn't, doesn't have rules or that you don't have to measure or something. Um, and you do, it's like, there's, there's principles in both. Um, but yes, baking as opposed to cooking requires, like, I think 
just stricter adherence to certain principles. Um, but it can be just as creative and seasonal and inspiring and in some ways improvisational as cooking. And that's what I want people to take away from this book is like, you can be a baker, even if you don't think you are a baker, you know, like everyone who has any desire to be in the kitchen and to, and to create something can be a baker. And that's what I hope this book delivers is I, I want to kind of introduce people to that way of thinking about baking is like it all exists on a spectrum. And he, this book is really about giving people the tools and knowledge to, to become a baker if they're not already. And yet, if you are already a baker, there's lots there too, because there's recipes of all different requiring all different levels of skill. So there's like every amount of buy-in, like from, I was just texting with a friend of mine who bought, who like got my book in the mail and was like, I've never turned on my oven. What do I make? And I was like, <laughs> you can make the brownies. Like there are recipes for the people who have never turned on their oven. And there's recipes for people who are like, you know, basically like, you know, mini, mini professionals or something. So um, mm -hmm. it caters to all, I think. And you have that interesting grid where you actually map out and organize all the recipes by how many hours and by skill level. Was that your idea of how to like help us enter into your world? Yeah, that was that was my idea of just sort of like making it more user friendly. And that's how I thought about the recipes in the book myself it was like, I want, I want the recipes to sort of fill that matrix so that there's every kind of recipe. Um, and that I would call it the recipe matrix. So it's really a way of sort of plotting difficulty versus time. And, and that's those are the two factors that I always consider when I think about a recipe. Um, and so there's like the recipes that are quick and easy, like a, a brownie or a blondie or, um, or like, you know, certain sort of lo loaf cakes, for example. Um, and those are at the bottom left corner. And then there's recipes where they maybe don't require a lot of active time and aren't very difficult, but they require maybe an overnight rest in the refrigerator. And so they're on a different corner of the, of the matrix. And, and there's the croissants, which take a long time and are very labor intensive. So um, this was really about letting people choose the kind of level of commitment that they that they wanted to make um, when they pick a recipe. And so it's like everyone, yes, I love being in the kitchen, but I also have other things to do. And everyone has a schedule and time constraints. And so this is just about letting people know what they're getting themselves into and having the right expectation for the recipe from the very beginning. Which is maybe a shout out. I saw that the clock is ticking on fruitcake. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I think you should make a pitch to everybody why we should be starting on A, choosing to make a fruitcake, and uh -huh. B, why we should be starting on it today. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, a friend of mine also like put like a thing on this Instagram story being like, shout out to Claire who put a recipe in like a um, general baking book that takes two months. <laughs> so yeah, I sort of slipped that one in. Um, but yeah, so this is a fruitcake recipe. I, I actually got the, the recipe that it's based on is a recipe from a friend and colleague named Joe um, Kahane, who is she's British and she has this like family fruitcake recipe. Um, and I was kind of unfamiliar with the realm of these sort of very traditional British, like aged cakes. Um, but it's a really fun recipe. And I think it will dispel, I hope it will dispel people's negative associations with fruitcake. I mean, it is like 
There's certain words to talk about desserts that are have very negative connotations, but I don't think are necessarily always bad. Like dense, for example, like it is a very dense cake, but that doesn't mean that's not a bad thing. It's um, it's like a super flavorful, really kind of um, spicy, like just really deep flavor, um, like cake with a ton of dried fruit in it and a ton of brandy. So it's um, it goes through an aging process where you bake the cake, you wrap it up in parchment, you store it in like a cabinet, and every week you take it out and unwrap it and pour two tablespoons of brandy over top, and it preserves the cake and ages it. And actually, I have one from last winter that I made that's still preserved. So after it's after it's done aging, you like cover it in marzipan or jam and marzipan and then royal icing, and it is hermetically sealed. So like, yes, if you want to make it for the holidays, you should probably bake it like soon um you're not, like you're not really too late but um i'm like you can have it anytime especially after you seal it it's it's great so um it's like become actually a favorite recipe of like certain family members who expect it now every winter um i just love that like i was able to put a recipe in the book that takes two months but <laughs> so we all yeah, have the, projects right now right to keep us counting down to the end of this year feeding the fruit cake yeah like- it's like having a low a low maintenance pet basically like you feel like <laughs> tend to it every week uh yeah the matrix has that fun little arrow that's like it goes off the page in terms of the, the time that it takes so um yes i i think anyone who like has dread dreaded memories of like some terrible fruitcake or something like try this one. It's, it's delicious. And like anything, it depends on the quality of the ingredients. So it's like, try to seek out high quality dried fruit and like, it's delicious. It also to me seems like a recipe that's very historic. And I learned in the preparation for our conversation that you actually had a history degree and you studied food history. And um, this seems like a moment in American history and global history that um, historians you get to be part of the thing that the books are going to be written about. So what do you see as a historian, a food historian that's interesting about this moment, you know, everybody doing their sourdough bread and yeah. yeah. (laughs) I I hope that it's, I mean, I think that's the the sourdough phenomenon, especially in late this past winter um, is super interesting. And I love that it is sort of a gateway for people into understanding bread technique and sourdough and fermentation, but like particularly flour, I think, um, I think having, I have a, so I have a master's degree in history from McGill university. And when I, and I, I focused on like culinary history, um, of France and England in the early modern period, um, which basically just means like I, I read old, like old cookbooks, um, and household manuals and like fascinating texts, so I would definitely see recipes like fruitcakes and puddings and all these things. Um, and it gave me such a long view of, of recipes and the idea that like, there's very little true innovation. It's like every recipe is just kind of a version of one that came before it. And so I think having that perspective is, is really important um, and super informative. Um, but with, with the pandemic and all the baking that's going on, I think, I I hope that it's sort of a window into that and to get people engaged with the history of baking. Like one, what I love about sourdough is it's so kind of elemental. It's like, there's, you know, you have your starter, your natural yeast from the air and it's water and flour and salt. 
And I think that's one reason I love it is like, it's so tactile and it's so kind of um, foundational. It's just like, this is, you know, flour comes from wheat and like learning to bake bread. Like this is what makes us human in so many ways. So I hope that it got people in touch with that kind of long view of a food history. Is there a historic recipe that you think serves this moment very well that maybe is mm. not in the book or is in the book? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think the fruitcake is particularly um, sort of relevant because it takes that amount of time. Um, I'm trying to think if there's other recipes in the book that were informed by um, sort of like my my um, my studies. Um I mean, not so much in this book, but um, I've like recently kind of begun some light work on a second cookbook, which is focused on like really simple desserts. And I think about a recipe like uh, Blancmange, which is like a, a British, there's so much like cross cultural British French kind of um, cuisine. And uh, it's, it's like, it's, it's kind of like panna cotta. Like it's, you know, it's like these things that we think maybe seem super contemporary, it really aren't. And so um, I think about that a lot. It's like, I'm making panna cotta, but really it's like a, a blanc mange or something like that. So um, yeah, I think the, the, there is a lot in this book that feels really contemporary in, in dessert person, but all of it goes back to these, you know, certain styles of recipes that people have been making for like centuries. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to think of it, baking will get more complicated or more simple, right? Because we have all this time now, right? Like, are we all going to be making these extremely complicated recipes? I mean, sourdough is pretty complicated in terms of time, right? Yeah. And with sourdough, it's like you are on the sourdough's schedule, like mm-hmm. not the other way around. Like you, you know, um, of course you can, you know, once you become sort of skilled and more knowledgeable, you can control the variables, Um how you want to, but I don't know. I think that like, there's always going to be a demand for things that are simple and straightforward and delicious. You know, I think those recipes that kind of over deliver on flavor and texture because they were simple to throw together. So um, Mm -hmm. like as much as people are spending time at home and, you know, and close to their kitchens, it's like, I still don't want to do a bunch of dishes or, you know, Mm -hmm. or, or do something that's super overwrought. So um, I feel like banana bread is like still a very good sort of recipe to have, you know, in your back pocket. Is there something that's been your go-to as you've been, you know, staying home pandemic time? Oh, I'm trying to think. I've done, I have done a lot of sourdough, um, a lot of galettes over the summer. Um, like, a, you know, a, a galette is, or like a crostata, same thing, like a, a you know, a, for anyone who doesn't know, like a single crust open face kind of free, free form tart, um, like just super simple stuff like that. You know, that that's kind of the stuff that I'm baking at home. Um, I went through in, uh, in the like late winter, early spring, kind of a, a chocolate chip cookie, uh, journey of like trying to make something that felt kind of whole, like wholesome and like with a lot mm. of seeds and nuts and, um, and, like whole, you know, whole wheat flour and that kind of thing. And that was very, like, it was like a very educational, um, project. And so I was mm-hmm. kind of on a kick up for that a little while. Um, it's like, I, I don't know. I just, I always feel like childhood cookies are, it's like, it's always the right thing to bake, you know? Mm-hmm. You can't go on. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
And you also mentioned in your book that you, and I want to read the quote of this exactly, um, that uh, citrus fruits are your natural antidote to seasonal affective disorder in the winter. (laughs) So we are definitely entering into winter now. Um, Is that where you're thinking now, like getting into oranges and lemons and lime? Yes, absolutely. There's, I mean, so like you're in California where like you have this incredible selection and variety like an embarrassment of riches when it comes to citrus not so much in new york but like even over the last couple years we have certainly seen like so many amazing new varieties of citrus and like it is totally a thing that i think to myself when i like walk into the grocery store as it as it's getting cold and dark and i'm just like thank god for citrus because like where would i be without this exciting new like you know fruit fruit to have and to play around with so um you know winter fruits are like you have apples in paris and you have them for a long time and it's just so nice to see like Mm. sumo oranges and beautiful tangerines and kumquats and you know limes like it's just meyer lemons like that gets me excited and it like it gets me excited to bake. Well, I think that's a good time to transition. I want to talk more about your time as YouTube celebrity. Um, I think there was a survey recently, right, with kids where they, it actually has now surpassed astronaut as like the thing that kids want to be is a YouTube star. Oh my God. Oh my God. That's slightly terrifying. So tell us oh, about no. that. Yeah. How, what was it like going on that journey? And do you miss it? Do you want to go back to that? It's, I don't know that I miss it because I, and I don't, it's like, there's this, I hope it doesn't come out the wrong way. Like it doesn't feel like there's anything to miss because it doesn't, mm. it didn't change anything about the kind of like, daily workings of my life, I guess, you know, I certainly there were more, and I don't think anyone ever becomes accustomed to this or if they do, then like might be a sign of sociopathy or something, but like to be, to like, st- you know, stopped on the subway or on the street or something to be like, aren't you that girl that like makes that those things? And I'm like, yes, that's, yes, that was me making the Twinkie or whatever. But, um, I, yeah, like that would happen and was always sort of a, like a mixture of being strange and kind of freaky, but also kind of cool, you know, and, and, um, it's, it's allowed me like wonderful opportunities, but it, having the success of the show on YouTube, like didn't necessarily, it didn't feel like it fundamentally changed Mm. my life. And so I sort of still, you know, still in my apartment and hang out with my friends and it's Mm. just as it was before. Um, but of course with like greater opportunities. So, um, I think I'll miss gourmet makes because it was just a great period of my life. Um, and I, I love the crew that Mm -hmm. I got to work with and they made it so much fun. Like there would be moments during shooting where Dan, the director would be like, Claire, we had to shoot this. And I'd be like, Dan, I'm talking to the, you know, Mike, the sound guy and Kevin who's holding the camera, like God shooting gourmet makes is really getting in the way of us, like hanging out even though we were at work. But, um, so I'll miss that. Um, but like I am, I'm a millennial and I don't, you know, like YouTube star wasn't a possible career path when I was growing up or even in college. So I sort of feel like the demographic to whom YouTube is a, is a really big presence. Like it's just 
not my, it's just not, I'm not part of that. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, in some ways, then like find the whole thing kind of strange and fascinating and weird. Um, Mm -hmm. And then like kind of disconnected from it, which I think is for for me, like the way I would like it to be. And just, you know, Mm -hmm. I kind of just go on living my life, but um, I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, like I, I think I'll miss just, I mean, I'll just miss the kind of the people that I made that show with, um, cause they were great, but I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't miss having to like spend four days making Skittles. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was partially your reluctance to sort of be dragged into these challenges was something that made it extra charming. Right. I think if you had wanted to eagerly bound in and make Skittles, it would have been a very different show potentially. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like that was something about the book is like, I, my sort of tastes as a pastry chef never leaned toward the, the gourmet recreations of snack foods. Like I just want to make cakes and pies and tarts. So, um, so that's where I think the reluctance came from. It was like, if I'm going to be in a kitchen, I'd rather be making something we can like all enjoy, you know, rather than like four Skittles or whatever. So, um, that the book was great because I think the writing of the book was great. Like the, the things that I was doing while I was writing the book, it was just the development process and gourmet makes. And I think in some ways they were really complimentary because they used such different like muscles and skills. And so um, to have, be able to do both of those things simultaneously, I think was really helpful, but I really did channel so much creativity into the book in terms of like the kinds of recipes that I wanted to be making because I knew I was never going to get, to, to make them in gourmet makes. Um, yeah. So yeah, the reluctance is like a nice way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> I think people also really appreciated that you failed and tried and tried and failed and tried, like over and over again. Right. And I think that's a part, you know, going back to the baking versus cooking side, you know, that idea of perfectionism and baking, Right. Mm-hmm. And that you kind of maybe busted that open a bit, right? I think that gourmet makes was really helpful to me, like in a personal sense, because it mm-hmm. it was I've never even thought about it or framed it this way, but I think there's an a way of that I experienced it that was almost therapeutic and like helping me get rid of or shed that that perfectionism and that, that tendency, um, Mm -hmm. to learn that like good enough is, is like almost better than good enough, you know, like perfect is the enemy of the good. Um, and it just taught me so much about the process. Like, I think, I guess said another way, like it just made me realize that the the process is the important part, not necessarily the final result. It's like before I makes, I maybe didn't nail the thing in the end, but I learned something really fundamental about, a cooked sugar technique or, or chocolate or something like that. Um, and so that the skills became additive. And so, um, like in a very unexpected way, gourmet makes made me a better recipe developer and a better, uh, a better, I think pastry cook really, um, which I did not ever anticipate or think about, but, but it really did. Mm -hmm. I think for me too, as somebody who was working from home before even the pandemic started, and then especially when we went into shelter in place, I think it also highlighted how it's the people that you get to work with more than the actual work often, right? And, you know, there's there's obviously been a ton about the the troubles and the toxicity 
you know, that was behind the scenes at Bon Appetit. And, you know, you're speaking to a Silicon Valley audience here. That's not something that we're unfamiliar with, right? Um, but it seems like that was a really big theme of it too, is like the fun of getting to create things together. Yeah. I mean, I think with Gourmet Makes, especially when I came back as a just as a, as a freelance video host, after I had left my um, full-time editing job, I did get to experience kind of the, the, what was like good and pure about the test kitchen, which was the kind of like idea sharing that, that, that happened there. Um, and I do feel like that, that was captured accurately and, and that, that was real. Um, it was a lot of things and there were a lot of, um, certainly like shortcomings and failures about that environment, but fundamentally it was still a place where like talented, passionate people got to exchange ideas, work together sometimes, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, I, and that's something that I miss about recipe developing at home. It's like, I actually like love being alone and I love being solitary and I'm an introvert. And, um, there's like when I'm at home with just Felix, like in my kitchen, I'm so happy, but I, I miss, I miss the idea sharing. You know, I, it's, it's, you get to where you want to be faster when you have, you know, more, more brains. So do you have a favorite moment from your time in the test kitchen that maybe wasn't part of a YouTube series? I mean, it feels like we got to see everything, Mm -hmm. but was there a moment that (laughs) stood out to you? Um, Yeah. I mean, I had so many years as an editor, um, of, of being in that environment. Uh, and like, you know, most of that wasn't captured, um, in any kind of direct way, uh, on, on camera. I'm trying to think, I mean, what was great about that environment when I was an editor is it was a place where among many things like real experimentation and, um, exploration was encouraged and, and I mean, not just permitted, but was encouraged. And so that's where like, I learned how to make sourdough because I wanted to learn how to make sourdough. And I was like, well, I'm already in the kitchen, you know, no one's going to be upset if I use a little flour, you know, and, and have this project going on on the side. So I, I miss that. And I miss kind of all the resources that were, that were at my fingertips, um, for just experimenting. And, and it was a place where like, to a certain extent you, you could, because experimentation was encouraged, like failure was also kind of encouraged, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I will miss that collaborative environment. And then are there things from that experience? Cause I, most of your professional life was in that kitchen, um, mm-hmm. that now that you're a little bit further away from it, I, mean, I can speak to this from my own experience of working in places where, you know, I developed amazing friendships and relationships and I did incredible work. And now a few years later, I'm like, what even was that? And like, how did we accept that as the way that that was the way that things were going to go? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, certainly look like my frame of reference in within the industry is super narrow because it was really just bon appetit. Um, And so I, I lack that kind of perspective that I think a lot of my, colleagues in other places in the industry have because they've, they've worked in multiple environments and um, certainly it lived up to the reputation, I think of Conde Nast brands, which is like, it was hyper competitive and um, there was like tons of competition for resources and for, for, for space, you know, on on the page and online. Um, And I do in so many ways, look back on it and say like, I shouldn't have accepted that that was 
sort of the the way things were done here, you know, which was kind kind of the um, the the party line about it. Um, and so, and I I really am glad to have that realization now because it means that whatever I do going forward, like I'm going to take that with me and realize that like the culture of a place is created by the people that comprise it. And, and I, and I know that like, if I have an opportunity to create a culture for myself and others, like it's, it's going to be different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the end that process it, to me is a nice parallel with the process of, of testing and trying and failing and making things better. I and mean, we're all going through this together as a society of what is and is not acceptable and what we want for the future. Right. And things are changing right. so quickly. Right. Um, I would love to hear, and we have just, you know, not too much longer before we go into question, uh, questions from the audience, but um, I would love to hear about what happens maybe for you next from here, you know, as a baker, as a, you know, somebody who likes to have a plan and a recipe, you know, and mm-hmm. who has had this, you know, two-year period that has completely upended I would imagine everything, right? I mean, your, your entire professional life has changed. You have this book, you got engaged, you got married, you have this beautiful cat. <laughs> so do you have a roadmap or your recipe for where you're going to go from here? Or, you know, have you kind of given that up at this point? It's such a good question. And the this period looks so much different than... I would have imagined six months ago or eight months ago. Um, and so, and for so long, I was just like, oh, the fall is like when the book comes out. And I, I at least had that. And now that I'm here and I am in that period, I'm looking into the future being like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? You know, like there's, this was a thing I was looking forward to. And now here we are. And now the future is, is, is something else. And like, what does that even look like? I'm not sure. So I am figuring it out and I'm actually surprised that I'm not, I like, I thought I, I would think I'd be more anxious not having a plan actually than I am. Um, but I'm also someone that like loves, I love detail. I love like discrete tasks. That's why I like baking. I mean, one of the many reasons it's like, oh, I can do all these things and then I'll have this result. And like, all I have to do is like pay attention, you know, and like, and I will have this thing. And so it's the, I'm really good at the micro. That's just how my brain works. The macro, not so much. So it's like, when I start thinking about like, do I want to do a YouTube thing or do I want to, I'm just like, I get like a little overwhelmed and then I just, I'm like, oh, I just want to go bake something, you know? So I am trying to train my brain to think more concretely, um, about like, what do I want the next six months to a year to five years to look like? Um, so I'm at the moment, like enjoying this period of the book coming out, but, and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. And I didn't think I would be so glad to be kind of a free agent, but I am. Um, but I think so, like, as I said, I'm working on a a second cookbook and just beginning work on that. And that's really exciting because like, I love, I know what that is now and I'm excited about it. Um, and I think video will be something that I continue to do, but I'm not quite sure like what that will look like. But yes, I, I think video is such a wonderful teaching medium and that's that's the value that I see in it. And so I, I hope that I will continue to do it. That's wonderful. Do you feel <laughs> like you're an entrepreneur? Like you're out there now yourself 
starting all these things? A, a very reluctant one. I don't, I would not apply that moniker yet. So like, I don't know, maybe ask me in like a year. I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess I can just, I guess it's exciting that I can decide to do that if I want to. Um, but I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm really bad at tolerating things that I don't want to do, which you probably saw in Gourmet Makes. And so it actually is a good, it's a good sort of quality to have because it means that I know exactly when I'm like not on the right track, you know? So um, mm-hmm. I have a pretty good gut. So I'm just going to follow it. And like, as long as I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I can make a living from it, I'll consider that a success. I think it's pretty impressive for the thing that you think you're not good at. This is the thing you got most famous for was being, you know, doing things that you didn't necessarily want to do. (laughs) Generally, I like things that I'm good at, but I don't like all things that I'm good at. I'm trying to think, I'm like, there was some kind of like weird corollary there, but I, I didn't quite get to it. But it's like, I dislike things that I'm bad at. I don't know. It doesn't always, it's not always a perfect, like, right. one-to-one, but, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, okay. Well, we have a bunch of questions coming in all over the spectrum of, like, technical baking questions and then big philosophical philosophical questions. So let's make sure we dive into this, I think, a little bit early. So um, let's go with a bigger question and we'll kind of work our way down to the spatulas. (laughs) Um, And so the first question comes from James and he says, at a time of so much cultural division in America, um, do you see baking as a way to bring people together and build community? And I would add on to that maybe also using your historian lens to think about the context of the moment mm, we're in. Mm. I do. And I, I yes. Um, and I think to your point about the historical lens, like I think it runs deeper than just sort of like the proverbial breaking bread with, with others. I think that it's about like building food systems and having that be based on a community model. Like I think about particularly with bread about, flour and how flour people think of it as just like a, an ingredient in your pantry like anything else but it is it comes from wheat it is a plant-based product freshness and terroir are so important and like you know what are the I think that building a system where wheat can be grown sustainably locally and milled locally and um, and distributed and shared within that community through farmers markets and through, uh, through other models is, is, is like, it, it is the key to so many things, not only building community, but like increasing sustainability and getting away from factory farming models. So I think that like looking at it sort of vertically um, and not just about like baking something and sharing it with your friends, which is wonderful. And, and yes, we should all be doing that. And that's how I experience community is, is by doing that. But I think it goes much deeper than that. Mm, mm, okay let's keep going on these questions there's so many <laughs> uh which recipe would you recommend for your cookbook starting for the novices you mentioned the brownies mm-hmm. you mentioned okay. yeah maybe one that's like a little challenging yeah. okay uh the cover recipe is like i think a really nice like it's approachable but it's got, you know, it's like you, you have to, you have to have some, some wherewithal, I think for that recipe. Um, so that's a, a blood orange 
or an olive oil, what, I mean, what is even the title? It's like an olive oil blood orange upside down cake or something like that. Um, Just do for winter. We got it. Perfect for winter. Okay. <laughs> You're a beautiful citrus. You could use a, a different kind of citrus too. It doesn't have to be blood orange. Um, like a beautiful tangerine or something would be great. Um, but that's a really, really nice one. That's maybe more like not quite novice, maybe more like beginner to mm-hmm. possibly intermediate. Um, I think for someone who's a true novice, the chocolate chip cookies is a really nice one. And that is not, it's not like you, you don't, a robot could make it. I mean, you have to brown butter. There, there is some technique there, but I think there's some great opportunity for learning. But also like there's no hit, there's no mixer involved. I think it, it is really approachable. Um, there's a halva blondie, which is really lovely. And I think could introduce people who have an, aren't familiar with halva, which is like a, a sort of a, a sesame candy. Um, there's all, there's like always little points of, of, I think learning in all the recipes. So, um, those are good places to start for the holidays. There's a, uh, one of my favorites is it the chewy molasses spice cookie, which is just mm. like really, really easy, really good. Um, just like a, a just you know, a great recipe to have sort of in, in one's back pocket. And so next question from Stephanie is about your wedding and how that all <laughs> went in the pandemic. And I would love to hear specifically too about your wedding cake. I know there's a recipe for funfetti cake and oh, yeah. that you made for your sister's wedding. Yeah. Did you repeat the funfetti? Did you do something different? I did not repeat the funfetti. Um, and we, so we were planning like a, a, not really even a proper wedding, but more of a, a bigger celebration in May, which obviously did not go off as we had planned. And then we decided to kind of pivot um, and had a, just our just our parents, basically, and, and immediate families um, in like a little ceremony. And so I made a cake, like a regular size cake, because we only had, you know, mm-hmm. like 10 people. Um, and so I actually used Harry's Berries, which I'm sure our California audience is familiar with. We like New Yorkers like go absolutely insane for them when they appear. Um, and in fact, I've had people be like, stop taking all California's berries. <laughs> like, I'm like, sorry. Like when I see them, I buy them. Um, so we had some like beautiful Harry's berries, strawberries. And um, I made like a super light eggy sponge cake uh, and like vanilla pastry cream lightened with a little whipped cream. I just basically made like a, there was something almost sort of Taiwanese about it. Um, just because of the texture of the cake, it was so fluffy. Um, and I, so it was like, a, I made a, a big layer of the sponge. I split it. I soaked it with some strawberry syrup using a technique that I actually learned when I was working in a restaurant after culinary school where you like take strawberries and just like sprinkle them with sugar and cover the bowl really, really tightly and let them just like sit in a warm place, even on a double boiler. And it extracts this like almost, it's like a strawberry consomme. It's like a super clear strawberry syrup. And then the strawberries, it's like making chicken stock with strawberries. Like the strawberries, all the flavor is now in the syrup and not in the strawberries anymore. Um, so I soaked it with that. Sorry, this is now a very elaborate description of this cake. No, um, <laughs> so then I soaked the layers. I think I also put some, I put some um, elderflower liqueur in it. Cause I thought that was like, I don't know. I just like, I was like, why not? Um, soaked layers, put the cream in, put a layer of berries. Oh, so sort of like a fraisier, this uh, also like this, this classic sort of French strawberry cake. Um, 
And then I decorated it, put the other layer on and then decorated the top with like a very elaborate strawberry um, concentric circles, like the, the slices. And then I unmolded it. And as soon as I cut it, the whole thing just like smushed and all the cream came out the side. So it wasn't, it wasn't super successful, <laughs> but it was delicious. It tasted amazing. That's all that matters. <laughs> Um, a question from Jeremy, are there any recipes in the book you consider sentimental for one reason or another? I know there's that mm -hmm. poppy seed cake. That's a recipe yeah. that predates you even being on the planet. <laughs> there are many sentimental recipes. I actually found out, so I spent, this was, so like not this past summer, but the summer before I spent like a month at my parents' house with my mom and I, like every day we would have like a marathon baking session because I was super behind on the book. And so I took a month off from shooting video and just was like my mom and I intensely baking constantly. And, and, and I dedicated the book to my mom. She, she was so such an, like an instrumental part of that process and just also taught me my whole life about baking. So she told me during this month that I, something I never heard before, which is that my great grandfather on her side was a baker. That was his profession. I was like, this is information I did not know. Why did no one tell, why did no one tell me? to maybe have brought up a little earlier. <laughs> I know. I thought it would have come up previously, um, but it hadn't. Uh, but it kind of explains like why in my family and my mom's side, we have a handful of these family recipes, mostly, you know, they're Ashkenazi Jewish recipes. That's my heritage. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a couple of those in the book, like my Aunt Rose's model bread, which is really my mom's Aunt Rose's model bread. Um, and one of the recipes also, which actually was not from my family going back generations, but was a recipe that my mom made growing up was that poppy seed cake that you referenced. And that's mm -hmm. such an easy recipe and it's so good. And when we shot the book, that was everyone's favorite thing that they tasted, like was the incredibly easy super simple poppy seed cake and not the more like elaborate, you know, layer cakes and this and that, because just like the simple things are, are the best. And so I, I love that poppy seed cake. It's, it's just like tender and flavorful and there's like a ton of almond extract and it's just, it's perfect in every way. So that, that one is near and dear to my heart. And I just ate it as a kid a thousand times. Was that your cake? Like, did you have a cake that was your birthday cake every year? The poppy seed cake was so ubiquitous. It was just like, that was just like, we had it around all the time. I feel like my birthday cakes were, I know my mom made our birthday cakes, but I can't quite remember like what I would have requested. I probably was like, can you buy me this cake from the store or something? Um, <laughs> But oh, she always makes a carrot cake. My mom has a fantastic carrot cake recipe, and she makes a delicious carrot cake. So I'm, that was probably a birthday cake growing up. Very good. All right, we have a couple more questions. Uh, Raquel and someone else asking, what's an uncommon kitchen appliance that you think everybody should have? An unsung hero. Mm. Well, I mean, in terms of appliances, I try to rely on just like, the trifecta of like blender, food processor, mixer. Mm. Um, and beyond that, I try not to get too specific, you know, it's like, and even with the blender, it's like, you can get by with a hand blender. I, I was, I was careful in the book that like, and anything that called for a blender, a hand blender would also be a, or a stick blender would, would also suffice. Um, not related to baking, but just as a thing to have, I love my rice cooker. It mm. is just like, 
and and it is versatile. You can make other grains in it, and it doesn't really have anything to do with baking. But it is just so. It's like if you're at home baking all day, it's nice to know that you can at least like make some brown rice, you know, while to eat mm-hmm. for dinner or something while you're like, you know, otherwise you'd only eat cake. So um, rice cooker is like weirdly. I think that's a good challenge for your next YouTube. Your return to YouTube is that you should have to make something in a rice cooker. People, I, people have baked. I know you can like, it, it steams. So you can make like puddings in it. I, you know, steamed puddings, which is like kind of a category of dessert. I've like never really ventured into, but like I, it, yeah, I, I, I'm curious. All right. I think we have time for one more question and then we're going to do our big official question that we always do. So let's ask, um, somebody asked, Lewis said, what's your favorite place to eat when you're back in St. Louis? My favorite place to eat in St. Louis. I have a couple. So maybe I'll, well, so there's one in particular that's still around. So like a lot of the places I grew up with are not around, but there's certain things that I crave. Um, there's this such, such a good Vietnamese restaurant called My Lee that is now, I believe, in a different location than it was when I ate there growing up. But my family would go there all the time and get get carry out from there. Um, and I remember, like, as a kid, with again, without, like, a frame of reference, it was like I didn't – I hadn't eaten at, like, tons of Vietnamese restaurants and it was just like, this place is awesome. And as an adult now, like, and living in New York, I'm like, no, that place is awesome. And I went there – the last time I was back in St. Louis, which was maybe a year ago. And like, it is delicious. That place is so good. And so I'm just like, yeah, St. Louis, we had just a handful of like, it's just such good places that we would go for dinner. And so, yeah, Miley is such a good Vietnamese restaurant and they have that delicious, like crispy Vietnamese pancake that I'm obsessed with. And to this day is still one of my favorite things to eat. So if anyone, anyone is, I mean, I'm sure people in St. Louis know, know it. It's it's lots of people's favorite place, but yeah. You're um, making yeah. me hungry. <laughs> all right. So let's end with our informed traditional question to ask all our speakers. What is your 60 second idea to change the world? Oh God, this is a very daunting question. Um, and I'm afraid that like my answer will strike many as being like perhaps painfully unoriginal, but I think access to like earth and the things that come from it is is so fundamental and is, and is so missing, even in my life personally. So I think places like Edible Schoolyard, it's like the ideas already exist. I'm just in some ways late in realizing that, that these ideas are already out there and are being applied. Um, but I think the idea of being able to grow food and, and harvest the food and to cook that food and to be involved in that process from start to finish is, is so grounding and so wonderful and to the extent that people and young people in cities you know again like with organizations like edible schoolyard can participate in that it's just it it's it's just sort of i think consciousness raising um and i think to have people be connected to the earth in that way is is just so important so um it is like my life goal to be able to sort of engage with that process and to, to grow things and to, to be able to feed myself and to cook from that. So, um, not my idea at all. And like an idea that's been around literally forever, but, um, it's just, Mm -hmm. I I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm realizing how fundamental that is for me. So 
I, I wish I had sort of a more original answer to that question. But. I think that's a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much, Claire, for joining us tonight um, from New York to join us at Inform for this Commonwealth Club event. We'd like to remind our audience that Claire's new book, Dessert Person, is available now at your preferred bookstore and it is beautiful. If you'd like more uh, virtual programs or to support the Commonwealth Club's effort in making virtual programs, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Emily Peters. Thank you and stay safe.